right about what you're interested in because that's it's blooming hard work and it's going to take a long time so you may as well be interested in it so i think if you can find a topic that interests you even with if it's within romance or whatever genre if you can find an angle into that is of interest to you then i think that would pull you through but also i think you've got to find a character you love Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, Pam here. Welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. You're in for a real treat this week. On the convo couch, we have guest host Rachel Johns chatting to her work wife, Anthea Hodgson, about Anthea's recent release, The War Nurses. Regular listeners will be very familiar with Rachel and she really needs no introduction and she will give an introduction to Anthea in the intro that she does to the episode. But just a little bit of background about Rachel and Anthea. They're great writing mates, they're great friends in real life, they have a fantastic online book club and are very soon to be hosting the Rachel Johns Readers Retreat, which is the first of its kind I think that's happening really here in Australia anyway. And I think Rachel may have initially got this idea from one of her writing gurus and one of the the people that she loves to read, and that is Ellen Hildebrand, who Rachel interviewed last year on Rights for Women. And Ellen regularly runs retreats where readers come along and she chats to them about her books. So Rachel's taken that idea and run with it. And the readers retreat will be at the end of May in Handorf in South Australia. I'll be going along to that along with a whole lot of other authors. And Rachel and Anthea are largely resp- definitely responsible for setting up that fantastic idea. So Rachel and Anthea have a great friendship, a great history, writing and otherwise together. I suspect they probably get up to a bit of mischief together and uh, you'll get a little glimpse into that friendship in this episode. So that's a really great episode. So stay tuned for that. Now, as I mentioned last week, I'm going to be bringing you a writing tip each week at the beginning of the episode. And I've gone a little bit further with that this week because I've decided to dip my toe into the TikTok waters and I've started putting some writing tip videos up on there. I'm probably doing it completely wrong. I have just gone in really knowing pretty much nothing about TikTok and I'm just doing my own thing there. So the writing tip that I have for you today was videoed here at my property. I'm doing some little videos where I walk around the property and share writing tips. And this is something that came to me as I was working on my work in progress this week. So we're going to go straight into the writing tip and then straight on from that into Rachel's chat with Anthea Hodgson. So grab a cuppa, you're in for a treat with this chat between two really good friends and finding out all about Anthea's book and the amazing personal story and research that's gone into the writing of it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. And starting off with this week's writing tip. So something that's occurred to me as I'm doing this and I'm about 
10,000 words in, I guess, to this kind of read, read, review and tweak is having multiple things set up at the beginning of the story will actually help you to avoid the saggy middle. Sometimes we just get past that kind of 15, 20,000 word mark and it's all a bit of a blur and it's what do we write next? How do we get to that next turning point? How do we make these middle scenes interesting? And it's just occurred to me as I've been looking at these early chapters that, oh, it's a little cameo from Sven the Goat, that (laughs) if you have enough story threads set up at the beginning, you're always going to have something to write about in your middle scenes. So, of course, you want that main storyline, that main thread set up that comes as a result of the inciting incident and the main story problem that the character has. But if you introduce in those opening chapters, the first, say, three, four, five chapters, enough other characters, enough other kind of issues and conflicts, potential conflicts that the char- your main character, your protagonist has with other people in the setting that she's in, if you hint at little different bits of backstory, particularly backstory that causes internal conflict for your character, you're then going to have plenty of threads to really chunk out those middle scenes while that main story thread is also happening. So that was just a thought that I had. And initially looking at this first 42,000 words, I thought maybe it was, there was too much in there. But now I'm thinking that's going to actually pay off as I get more into the middle part of the story. So that's today's thought on writing. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel Johns, author of Rural Romance and Women's Fiction, and my latest book is The Work Wives, published by HarperCollins. And I am delighted today to be on the convo couch with my good friend and work wife. We have a book club together, which I'm sure we'll tell you a bit more about later. Anthea Hodgson, also author of Rural Romance and now Historical Fiction. Anthea Hodgson is a country girl from the Wheat Belt in Western Australia. She likes all the usual stuff, from chocolate to puppies and wine and cheese, I'll add. She loves coffee, which probably played a large part in her move from the farm to Perth, although she thinks boarding school may also have had something to do with it. I'm very jealous that you went to boarding school because I think when I think boarding school, I think of Mallory Towers and Harry Potter and it just sounds so much (laughs) fun. It was not like that. Don't be jealous. Okay, I got. I think I've heard from you that it might be. Anyway, in Anthea's previous life, she was child-free. This is before we met. Now we're both very much not child-free and we spend much of our days, as well as whinging about writing, also whinging about our teenage children. She worked as a radio producer, which I happen to think has to be must, one of the most coolest previous jobs I've ever heard of. But apparently the coffee was terrible. Wouldn't bother um, me. But the people were great. <laughs> As I said, she now has three brilliant kids, including her husband, a job she loves even more than radio. Hmm. Is that true? Not all the time, but most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And she's published by Penguin Random House. Her two first books were called The Drifter and The Cowgirl, Amazing Rural Romances, and her latest book is The The War Wives. The War Nurses. It should be called The War Wives, Anthea. Maybe the next one, Rach. I'll work on that for the next one. Yes, that's a good idea. I'll marry one of them off. Excellent. Okay, I'm always helpful with sequels and stuff like that. 
So Anthea's latest book is The War Nurses, published by Penguin, and it comes out in April. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love that Kelly Rimmer has given you a quote for this book. Have you got the quote by Kelly Rimmer there? Because I I have not in my book. I do. I was so thrilled. Kelly was so kind. She has written, I could not put this book down even as it broke my heart. So I was thrilled. Yeah, beautiful quote. Oh, we all know that I'm quite hard when it comes to reading, so I didn't need tissues, although I did find it very emotional and I absolutely love it. Do you think people need tissues? Should we warn them they need tissues? Not Your publisher cried, didn't she? Not necessarily, but, yeah, a lot of people have. So, yeah, maybe. If you're a lovely softie, maybe, yeah. Because I don't all think right. my publisher's got through it many times without crying and she's read it a lot. Yes, your wonderful publisher is Ali Watts from Penguin, who I think so many people have such respect for in this industry. So we'll maybe talk about your editing process later. But let's take a step back first. And maybe I'll learn some things too, because as I told everyone, Anthea and I are good friends. We do a lot of things, awfully things together. We have been on research trips for my books and future ones of Anthea's. Yes. Um, we also run the Rachel Johns Online Book Club, as I mentioned briefly in the intro. But I think that everyone always has skeletons in their closet. So I'm hoping today that I can find some things out about you that I didn't know and that all the listeners for Rights of Women will find wonderfully interesting. So I want to know, you started in radio. Yes. But let's go even further back than radio. Yep. What did you want to do when you are in high school? Oh, when look, when you're talking about skeletons, I think, gosh, I've really got nothing interesting to add here and now you're proving it. But when I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer for sure, but you know how you have a few things? So I probably had vet because I like animals. Everyone wants to be a vet at some stage. Yeah, I had vet. Vet my son. Yeah, 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 exactly. Love boy. I reckon vet or something in film and TV. Yep. But didn't know what, but storytelling-y that sort of thing. But I didn't And so know why that. radio? What did you do at uni, sorry? Uni, I did film and TV, English degree type uh, thing. Okay. And then because I'm in WA, there was not a lot being filmed here then and there still mm-hmm. isn't. It's improved a lot, but it, the industry was yeah. there. And so radio became the most obvious me- electronic media thing for me to do. And so then I moved into talk radio and would get up super early in the morning. No, actually, I lie. I did a bit of everything because I did super early in the morning, but most of my initial time was spent late at night working. Oh, I didn't know that. See, there you go. Weekends till late at night, which is really tough on talk radio because most people are out and about or are sleeping off the working week. And then I did, during the week, I was producing Graham Mabry for a while. He was on nights here in Perth. And then I moved to Sydney and so then worked a little bit in radio but because we lived way out in Castle Hill, which I think you used to live in Castle Hill. I did too, yeah. How hilarious. Um, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. because I I remember being surprised when I heard you used to live there. I was so far from the station that it just became too hard and so then I left radio for a while, got back into it in Brisbane. We moved up to Brisbane and I worked commercial there and then started working at the ABC there, which I really loved. And then popped out a couple of babies and we moved back here. And I've never found it easy enough to return to radio because with two small kids and my husband works away a lot. And so I just found the hours too punishing to get back into radio. Yeah. And so you went then back to your, had you always had that burning passion to write a book? And then yeah, you decided I've that always that was when to Yeah. 
Yeah, from be- even when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer. It didn't occur to me it was something that you could actually do. Like I think coming from a farming family, you're pragmatic, and so I think I was aware, you know, that's a nice thing to want to do, but you don't actually do it and no one gets published and all that sort of stuff. And so I don't think I really pursued it, and it was only when I was uh, at home with the two kids and I thought something that I could do from home would be really handy. And so then I just, I knew rurals were quite big at that stage. And so I thought I am rural. And if I was going to write anything now, I would have access to that sort of history. That's why I sat down and wrote Drifter when I had the lilies and I got up early while they were asleep and fitted it around the kids. Two things I want to investigate there. When you say you are rural, explain what you mean by that for our listeners. I'm from a tiny little town called Neelering in the WA Wheat Belt and my mother is also a farm girl from Darkin. So we've got four or five generations of farmers on both sides of my family. So we're all sort of farmers, farmers' daughters, farmers' sons. My farm is still there in Neelering. My brother's still on our family farm and it was my grandfather and great-grandfather went out and cleared it, which is actually, we'll be talking about that family later, I've ended up writing about. So, yeah, Mm. we're very much rural people. But I've got to say, I went away, as you said in my bio, I left the farm full-time when I was 12. But I still remember myself. And I still know because my mum is still mates with all those people. My dad's now died, but my mum is still mates with all those people and I still know exactly what's going on in everyone from Yellering's life because my mum catches up with all the girls all the time. So once you're rural you're always plugged in yeah did you ever consider farming yourself I when I was a teenager I very much did yeah I would have quite happily been a farmer but I think once I was an older teenager I was more attracted to the storytelling side of things so I wanted to get more into either film or tv or writing or radio or something like that I just wanted to go and do something more exciting and you did what what (laughs) <laughs> and you did. What is not that farming's not exciting because we both write. Yeah, 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 I miss it. I miss exactly. I yeah. do. I miss the countryside, and I love whenever we go on trips. I just love being out amongst the paddocks and seeing what the crops are up to. And yeah, I love the community out there. It's just wonderful. Yes, yeah, so I do miss that, and I'm sad that my kids haven't grown up in that. Yeah, having been in the country too myself, and my kids were there from birth to between seven and eleven. Yeah. I sometimes wish they had more time there because it is such a special experience. Um, so let's go back to that first book quickly. We're going to get mostly talk about your book, The War Nurses, today, which is a bit of a switch from your first two books, which were rural romance. Um, yeah. The Drifter. Now, your website tells us that you wrote The Drifter in five weeks. Now, yeah. I think even pretty speedy writers will agree that it's pretty fast to write a novel especially your first and especially one that goes on to get published so how the heck did you manage to do that look I say it took me five weeks to write because it did not take me five weeks to get published so it took me much longer (laughs) to get published so yeah I did it was that thing and I think most mothers are like this is that you feel like you've got to it certainly wasn't paying and you have small children, you have responsibilities, and so you feel guilty for taking time away from doing the stuff that you feel you're supposed to be doing. And to give myself permission to do it, I think I felt like I had to carve out time around the kids. I had to get up super early and I had to get a lot done really quickly. So I think that pressure of not wanting to waste other people's time 
moved me through it pretty fast. And I'd sat down with my husband and we'd gone, oh, what would be a fun thing, blah, 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 blah. And there was a Jason Statham movie out at the time, quite like a bit of Jason Statham. And yeah. he was a hot homeless guy in London. And so I thought, oh, there's something about that, the drifter, blah, blah, blah. And so, of course, the drifter isn't ultimately the Henry character. It's ultimately Kate, my main, my lead. But so we, I just sketched out this thing and then I just wrote down scenes on cards. I didn't really have an idea of what a structure should be, but I've read so much all my life. I think I knew. And yeah. mind you, it still needed a lot of tidying by the time Ali got it. But I wrote it very quickly. I started to send it off. It got roundly ignored. I sent it off to the one of the competitions at the RWA, the Romance Writers of Australia, and didn't it didn't even get through the first round. And then what I had for those judges thinking. Yeah, well, <laughs> did not like it. And then I sent it off, I think the next year, and the same thing happened. And then I thought, that's it, I've just got to go and pitch it. And so I said to my long-suffering husband, I'm too shy to actually go to the conference, but would it be okay if I just went all the way over to Melbourne, pitched my novel, was there for 10 minutes and then left immediately? And he said, that would be <laughs> fine, darling, how completely normal you are. And so I, I flew over and did exactly that. I pitched and that was all I did at the conference. I just flew over, stayed overnight, walked in, pitched and then flew out. And Ali was lovely as she's that's just, Ali Watts from Penguin Ali Watts yeah she funnily enough we'd already met and she remembered it because she's a big brainy freak but she I met her I went in and I had memorized my pitch and she said to me oh you look very familiar and I said we have actually met 15 years ago but blah and I gave her my pitch and <laughs> she was really interested and she really liked she really liked the vibe of it and she's that kind of person she's a really intuitive reader and very broad thinker about fiction and so she took it on board and then approached me shortly thereafter and said look I'd be interested in doing something with it but we need to tighten aspects of it and it's a little slow here and there and all that sort of stuff and of course I was thrilled to make whatever changes she wanted and we went ahead and published. And it was a brilliant novel and anyone who can see us which I don't know remember if they can see the covers of The Drifter and the Cowgirl behind you now and I am your friend, so it sounds bizarre when I say it might sound biased if I say it's a brilliant novel. So I'm just going to put the caveat in that when I read The Drifter, we barely knew each other. Mm. We have become very good friends since The Cowgirl, really, where we mm. talked at my, the online book club that we now do together. And I wanted to say that The Drifter is literally one of the best real romances I have ever read. It is smart, it is funny, and it's original. It's hard to do it in an original plot yes. in rural romance, but I think you absolutely succeed with both your books. Oh, so, thank you. Um, yeah, it is hard. Well yeah. done. Yeah, it's a and, lovely genre um, of rurals, but it is, as you say, once there's a lot of rurals out there, it is hard to keep it fresh. Yeah. Yes. And how, speaking of keeping it fresh, we're going to get into your historical in a second, but is there anything you do when you decide to write a novel, when you come up? I know that you've written two rurals and one historical that have been published, and I think there's at least one book in between there that, yeah, yeah, you, that hasn't, never um, hasn't happened. Is there anything, when you're thinking about writing a novel, when yeah. you've got that first seed of the idea, like how do you work out whether that is worth pursuing and whether it is original enough and is there anything you do to try and work out or make it original oh that's such a good question I don't know that I've written enough to actually have a process though Rach I reckon the first one I was just seat of my pants this would be a thing and the second one was bouncing off the first because in the first one I had a character who was a drifter, she was drifting through life and thematically she was coming home when she came to the farm and she was finding out 
what a valuable life was and that the things that she had thought were old and stodgy and stupid were actually quite valuable and what she needed in her life. So in the second one, I was bouncing from that to another girl who was stuck on the farm and who wanted to have the bravery to leave the farm and to have the adventures that she had never had. And so she was bookending the other character. So thematically, I guess I was approaching that when I started that. I was more thinking if the theme of the first one was coming home, then the theme of the second is being set free. And so I built up a world that she couldn't leave and had reasons for being afraid to leave and then set her free at the end of that. So there was that. The themes are different, yep. Yes. And then with Warners, Warners is... I've had to do almost no work in that area and a lot of work in every other area because War Nurses is very much based on an actual event. It's not just based on stuff that happened in the war. It's based on a bombing, a massacre, a rape, a murder. Okay. Yeah. So let's get to to War Nurses now, which is the book we're mostly talking about today because it's being released in April. Can you give us first, I could read the blurb, but I'm sure you can tell us much more beautifully exactly what this book is about who the, who the characters are um, where it's set or oh, give us the whole the york notes of, oh my of spark notes okay so look i'll try I, there's no way i'm going to do better than the blurb on the back this is going to get boring very quickly because i'll get all mixed up but i'll start off with the actual history so there's a thing that happened and i need to tell you about it the thing that happened in the war nurses i'm holding it up and i don't know if anyone can see it but i know you can the thing that happened in the war nurses is in Pacific, in the war, in the Pacific War, we had nurses going everywhere. My bunch all went to Singapore. They spent almost a year in Singapore before anything really happened. So the first section of the book is that it's they go to war, they're playing golf, they're going swimming, they're going to parties, they're going shopping, they're having quite a good time. Then uh, Pearl Harbor happens and the Japanese start to attack and they come across and they come to the the top of the Malayan Peninsula and they come down very quickly. The British did not expect it to happen. Singapore fell in 42, in February of 42, and all the nurses were to be evacuated as quickly as possible. And there was a lot of argument about that because the nurses didn't want to leave their patients. And so there are a lot of nurses refusing to leave patients. And then they said, no, we must do the right thing and go with these guys who are going on their ships. Everyone was trying to get out of Singapore because they had thought Singapore would never fall. There were a lot of civilians trying to get out, a lot of Dutch people trying to get out as well because, of course, it was the Dutch East Indies at the time around them as well. So everyone was onto ships and out trying to get through the straits. As they were leaving, the majority of ships were bombed by the Japanese. Now, my girls got on a ship called the Vinerbrook, and I say my girls because I'm taking ownership of them in an unfair fashion, but one <laughs> of them was my great-aunt Minnie Hodson and she was one of the girls who was onto the Vinerbrook. There were 65 nurses on the Vinerbrook. They were going through the Banker Strait. They eventually were hunted down by Japanese planes. They were bombed. Twelve of the girls then died in the bombing and subsequently drowned. Of those, the remaining girls, they floated into an island called Banker Island Some of those girls came in early onto a beach called Raji Beach and my aunt was one of those nurses and the other girls floated and came in later, sometimes further around, sometimes at Raji, and they were taken into the camps in Sumatra. Now, the girls who were taken into the camps in Sumatra, they were moved from camp to camp and eventually at the end of the war they were found. 
of those girls, eight of those girls died of illness, malnutrition, typhoid, etc. And they suffered greatly while they were there, were treated brutally, denied food, denied medicines, that sort of thing. Of the girls that were left on the beach, there were 22 of them. And they were with their the soldiers that they were looking after. It was decided they had no other option other than to surrender. And so they went, the, uh, some soldiers went in to surrender to the Japanese who came out to collect them. And they took the soldiers around the corner of a headland and murdered them. They bayoneted them mostly and came back around to the nurses who knew then at that point that they were to be murdered as well. It's recently Lovely. come to light that they were raped beforehand, which had been a secret that they had take, pretty much taken to their grave, but it's become apparent now that those nurses were raped first. And one of the great inspirations for me to write, it was actually a wonderful woman, and I don't know if it's worth showing you a photo of her because I know you probably know yourself, but I'll, just in case, this wonderful woman here, matron Irene Drummond, she was she was with the nurses on the beach and they were all made to hold hands. They didn't make, to make them hold hands, but they chose to hold hands. And just as they were walking into the sea with a machine gun in the sand behind them had been set up aiming at their backs, Matron Drummond sang out to them all. She said, chin up, girls. I'm proud of you and I love you all. And I just thought what a wonderful thing to say and what a, and in the last moments of their life to have that wonderful mm-hmm. woman show them such love and pride. And so that really inspired me to do something with this story. And so this has been, it's taken me a long time to write, but it's also been a story that I've wanted to write ever since I did Drifter. But I just was waiting until I was a good enough writer. And I then I realised I'd run out of time. I was ne- I'm never going to be a good enough writer to write. <laughs> so I have, just had to do it. And so then I, and, and I made the mistake of putting them up on my wall. They're right next to me, right there. Perfect. And been sitting there all that time. And so once you put them up, you can't take them down. And so now I've I've had to commit to writing it. So there was the reason we know the story that I've just told you is because one of them was Vivian Bullwinkle, who mm-hmm. I was gonna ask how you knew about it. Yeah. Yes, and she survived. So she was shot, she fell forward, she managed to pretend she was dead. She later went into the camps and they kept that secret throughout the war. And at the end of the war, she told the truth about what had happened but there was there's someone who came through the camps during the war and they thought hey, we're all going to die here anyway of starvation and disease so they did tell a top one of the commanders top secret just in case they didn't make it but yeah she made it through and she went to the tokyo war tribunal with that story so yeah so that we would never have known what had happened to those girls had she not survived so is she the reason that the secret has come out that they were raped Oh, kind of indirectly. There's a few stories about it. She had been talking to a journalist who said that she did say to her that something had happened, but that's not been fully verified, I don't believe. And then there was another story where they were in a car and two of the old nurses were there with this journo and they and she said that she's been telling her what's happening and the other lady said, you haven't told her the other thing, have you? And she said, no, I haven't told her that. So we're not sure about that, but... Her uniform is at the Canberra War Memorial. I saw it last year myself. Ah, yes, yes. And the, looking at that with the entry point and the exit point of the of the bullets, it looks like it's she's been stripped, like it's been stripped down from her waist, and the because wow. it doesn't line up in terms of where her wound was. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, and so it it seems extremely likely that it was the case. And also, there's evidence that the people that they surrendered to had already raped and murdered nurses in Hong Kong in a. Uh-huh. Day massacre that happened there. So it seems extremely likely that is what happened to them. Yeah. 
Now, we obviously don't want to give away, I was going to ask you another question. I thought maybe that's a bit of a spoiler about Vivian because it is a, it is a story based on fact. But you have fictionalised it to there make are, I have it embroidered. Yeah, I have embroidered here. And there have been things that I've, there's so much, that I, there's so much that I've left out, it pains me to say. But that was, that was the other challenge about it though, Rach, because I'm trying to write a story that is a history, but I'm aware that my readership are not history fans necessarily. I don't want it to be a stuff happening in order book. I want it to be a fiction that pulls in the general reader and gets you right into the heart of these nurses and shows you what they went through and how it felt. And so my, so some of my characters, all of my characters really are fictional, even though I would say Vivian's not, but I've kept her at arm's length because I haven't yes. wanted to turn her into a major character and then pretend she said stuff she didn't. I've used my aunt's name. I have altered one or two little things about her past. I put some family history in there that's true. Mm-hmm. But I have altered a few things just so it's not a biography. I've so stopped- for those people who will have read it by now who are going to read it, tell yeah. us the facts about your Aunt Minnie. Like what have you kept that's real about Aunt Minnie well, and what did Aunt you think Minnie- Yeah, sure. Look, Aunt Minnie, she did go to boarding school and in the novel she runs away from school. She gets a report that says unsatisfactory and she's not happy <laughs> And she runs away from school when she's about 14, 15, we reckon. And the family at home in Yellering didn't know until she just walked up the front drive. Like, no, school didn't mention it. She didn't mention it. She just arrived home and stayed home for a little while and then declined to go back to that school and went to another boarding school to finish off her high school years. So she went to two boarding schools down here in Perth. So that part was true. There was also, I refer to the drowning death of, I've called him her twin. He was not her twin. Her brother, Oliver, the family called him Noel, but I call him Oliver in the book. Uh, But he drowned in the Swan River. He was down here at school and he was part of the rowing team. And he reached out in the boat and he reached out for an oar that was floating away, fell in and drowned. And he, his death is in the book as well. She also, another thing that I included about her was she was quite interested in a lovely farmer from Coolan, which is she was a matron at Condinan, which I've included, and she was quite interested in a farmer from Coolan. He, though, was interested in someone else and she realised it was not going to work out and that's when she joined the army. So there's there are some truths about Auntie Minnie in there. But, yeah. There, so I it's want- the guy's fault because if she'd married him, she never would have died. Thing. I reckon well, if she had I guess married eventually him, she would have died, but yeah. <laughs> she would have died by now. But I think if she'd had her way, she probably would have married him, left nursing because that would have been what you do, and she probably would have been a farmer's wife out at Coolin. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, so, it's an amazing story of all the girls that you've fictionalised, and I know you've taken so much. Having been there with you for the last what, three or four years, oh, that you I'm have you. been researching and writing this story. No, it has been fascinating. The only frustrating thing is, listeners, that Anthea wouldn't let me read it until it was in advanced reading format beginning <laughs> by end of last year. And as soon as it arrived, I immediately, I feel very connected to this story. Even though I didn't write it, I feel like I almost did. <laughs> yeah, you and Fiona Palmer, as I was walking around the paddock on our morning walks and I, uh, talks, walks and talks, and I'd be telling you, oh, this has got to go in and that's got to go in and this is coming out and and the other thing being of course that what I wanted to happen in the fictional part of the story because my fictional characters they do get on the Queen Mary and they do travel and all that's as it happened but I do have my fictional characters living their lives within that but the songs that they sing and all that sort of stuff that's 
pretty much not true. I think I snuck one song in that they didn't sing. Yeah. Um, but all that sort of stuff's true. But then I had inconvenient things happen. The year that they're there in Singapore, the Japanese haven't attacked them. And it quite suited me if my hero would have a horrible injury from ah. And then I found it very inconvenient that they hadn't attacked yet. So I had to like find a way to injure him. Or Let's have not him. say what. Let's no. not say what you did. No. We don't want to give too much away. But that is interesting, isn't it? The process of writing books and how often you think you're going to be able to do something, but then yeah. for various reasons. We always we have a debate occasionally about you've written now contemporary and historical fiction. Yeah. I like ribbing you and anyone who's written historical fiction because the people who have written historical fiction, I tend to hear them think it's very hard. So they put a lot of effort into the research. It has to be exactly right and much harder than writing contemporary story. And I have to say I think that's a lot of bollocks <laughs> because, as I have been known to say at events and things before, in historical fiction you've got things like hor- horrific illnesses that will oh, actually yes. kill people off. Love you've it. got wars more than yep. we do in the contemporary world that we write about today, although I do know there are wars, but you've got medical sorry we talked about the medical already if you have a baby outside of marriage shock oh, horror if some, one of your exactly. girls gets, if, exactly. if one of them got pregnant right, you know, while she was there it's yep. terrible you're not allowed to be gay or anything like that no. that's so there's so many things you don't have facebook you don't have mobile phones yeah. that can yeah be. something or yeah yep, exactly. google so i feel like that as contemporary writers have a lot more tricky than historical fiction authors but can you you've written both So I would like you to tell me the differences between writing your rurals and writing your historical fiction. Do you you prefer one or the other? You know, just give us a general sort of... Recently I'm going to say I very much prefer writing rurals because when I was digging around going, oh, for goodness sake, because even things like... I wrote my thing and I'm not an historian. I'm interested in this story, but not a historian. And so I'd written things like, oh, and women Jeeps, blah, blah, blah. And then my husband reads it and goes, Jeeps, the Japanese wouldn't have used Jeeps. That's an American thing. Lucky he knew. Yeah, that sort of thing. And so by the time I was getting down to that sort of thing going, oh, this is getting really annoying now, I was feeling a bit over it by then. I would say I reckon, oh, I do love history. I'm a bit of a history boy. I do love writing historicals. and I've, I've, I've loved and hated writing this, but I do say I love writing a historical except that writing about an event is hard because you. I think if you're writing something set during an event or, or during a so you're fictionalising it completely, you mean? Yeah. If you're setting something in it, it's set in the court of King Henry VIII, fine. You can have a lot of things happening that who make it up, whatever. But once it's stuff that happened that people have families involved in and stuff, just the weight of responsibility of getting stuff right. And there'll be stuff in here that's right. And there'll be stuff that I've deliberately fudged, actually, because some of it you go, that gets repetitious if that's going to happen 10 times. So yeah. I'm just, I've got to squeeze stuff and I've got to cut stuff out. I've got to keep this thing moving. So I would say I'm going to say it's easier to write a rural. That well, said, uh, I mean, I've only done it twice. I don't think it's easier if you do it any more times than twice. Nothing's twice easy really time. in the writing world, let's face it. But mm. how did you, I had a question then about how did you decide what to what to put in the book? Because you did a lot of research. It's so painful. Tell us some of the anecdotes that you found that you just loved about the story oh. that didn't make it in. 
Oh, look, I probably have brain dumped them now because it's so upsetting to lose them. There was, <laughs> look, there were lots of things that I really wanted in. There was one or two. Once I was at your event and I was talking to someone about a, a story that I liked and I realised that I'd, it had gone and I went, when did that go? I haven't seen it recently. And I, I remember emailing Ali on the bus saying that's got to go back in. It was my spitting story, which I really liked. But, look, there was a lot of stuff that couldn't go in. There was, there was stuff that I loved but slowed down the story. So I've got this whole fiction. I've got my four fictional characters, which I haven't even told you about yet, which is yes, Minnie, my fictional Minnie, who is the real Minnie, but fictional Minnie. Then I've got Margot McNee, who is, she's the eyes through which we see the whole drama. She is the witness to it all, is my Margot McNee. She starts off as a very timid sort of nurse. She's very rules-driven, very timid. Then I have Beth, who is just dead set cracker. She's- I loved Beth. She's probably my favourite. She is just she's from Queensland and just a cracker, isn't she? Yeah, Such a character. Her. Yeah, yeah, loved her. So she was based on a nurse called Blanche Hampstead. Real name was Pauline, but it's called Blanche Hampstead. Hempstead. And she was totally fantastic and hilarious. And so I loved her. But she comes in and she's couldn't kill me with an axe kind of girl. And she's there looking after people, drinking, smoking, not giving a toss. She's fantastic. So I had her. And then I had Lola, who was from Sydney. She has a very sad um, thing in her past. She's quite idealistic and almost like a Disney princessy nurse. She loves to sing. She yearns to fall in love and to be loved by someone. And she, Lola, she's got a sad past and that's what makes her so idealistic. So I had those girls and I needed, and this is where Ali Watts comes into her own because when I sent it to Ali, what I had and how long ago I was stomping around in this mess and I eventually just sent it to Ali and said, I don't even know if this is a thing or if I just need to move on with my life. Could you just have a look? (laughs) Because I trust Ali to tell me what's what. And Ali really loved it and said, look, it's definitely a thing. She signed it on the spot and then she had faith in me to fix it because then we had to go back and fix it. And what we needed was those four characters. I'd been wanting to get on with the action because I'm desperate not to bore my audience and I'm aware that it's an historical and it's based on a real thing and I can feel it feeling stodgy to people who don't care and so I really want to get in there. And she said, no, slow it down. I want to know who they are. And so Ali really helped me shape the start of the novel again and where there's more of them on the ship, which the Queen Mary had been commissioned for wartime use, and then more of them in Singapore and some of the shenanigans. There's a love story that happens. There's some adventures that happen. And all their characters come out and all their relationships form there. And then the tension ratchets up with the arrival of the Japanese coming down the peninsula. And then the tension ratchets up when they have to get onto those ships. And then when they're on the Viner Brook, and they're being hunted, the tension ratchets up, and then, of course, they're in the sea, bombed in the sea. Yeah, I was just going to say, isn't it interesting, as writers, I think especially these days there's so much distractions of social media and Netflix, and we can always be busy doing podcasts and all this sort of stuff. It's so different to the days of Charles Dickens and Jane Austen where take your time to get to a novel, and now we're always told you must start in the action immediately. Don't dump us on in- yeah. backstory and info dumping yeah. and all this sort of stuff. So I found it fascinating that we're paranoid about that, but Ali's main editorial to start with was yeah. to really show us character, which goes yeah. down to what I definitely believe that you can have a great plot, which obviously you do because it's something that's happened and it's a there's a lot of there's a lot of action in it, there's a lot of heartbreak and stuff. But mm. we to make the readers care, you had to make those characters people that we would care about. Yeah. So how did you distinguish them and how did you decide what did you do to make the readers care and have you got any advice for making 
for aspiring authors or other authors into how to make their, their characters pick ones that people actually give a damn about. I think backstory is really important. I think humour is really important. Which um, you do very well, always. Yeah, even even Anthea's text messages people. I do love a bit of a laugh. And, yeah, so I think humour is important because I think people automatically start relating to people. Once you're laughing, you're already on the same wavelength. So I think humour is important. And backstory, I think, is really important. But you can't just lump it in, out there. So I just think slowly discovering backstory. And I think details are important. It's no, I agree. Just those little things or that little mannerisms that you see in people, and I think you absorb them without even knowing that they're there, but it, they add to this impression and then you feel as if it's a real person that you know. People like Beth, Beth was great because she was she's quite a mannish sort of character and so she was always sort of beer drinking, smoking. So every time she would make some sort of comment about that, you'd go, oh, that's definitely Beth. Even if it was in a dark room, you'd go, oh, that's Beth. Yeah. Uh, and she, uh, there's even a scene of her where she rolls up pages of the Bible and smokes them like cigarettes <laughs> wood in the camp and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is just based on re- the real story of the nurses. And you actually would yeah. ask me before about stuff that had to go and a lot of the stuff there were tons of little stories from the camp and my problem is it's such an unbalanced story because time-wise the camps are like three or four years because mm. they were in 42, so say three years, finished 45. And you can't have everything that happened in the camps because it's going to be the longest, most boring thing ever. <laughs> but there were so many charming, amazing stories of them being funny or brave or dress-ups or this one nurse who had wore glasses and the, the guard was about to slap her face and the other nurses were very amused because she held up her hand to say stop and then she took her glasses off and <laughs> he slapped her. And then there was another Dutch lady who liked to wear really bright lipstick and one of the guards, because they nicknamed them all, and this one was called Lipstick Larry, so he obviously didn't like <laughs> lipstick. And so he came and he tried to slap her face and she ducked and the whole, they were at Tenko, which was the county, and, and the whole count was <gasps> wondering what's going to happen. So he had another go and she ducked again. And then she took off around the corner and he took off after and never found her. And so everyone, those small little victories, everyone take, would take great strength from. And that reminds me of the spitting story that accidentally got cut out, which I had shoved back in, which was right near the end, they're in the final camp and they've moved from camp to camp, they're all dying, they've moved them to a new camp to try and slow the deaths from malaria, etc. and the nurses uh, not only have the Japanese positioned their, their quarters and their latrines over the river from which the nurses are carting their water so they're potentially drinking their toilet waste, the nurses yeah. are carting their water for the Japanese guards but they had a rule that you had to have a little layer of foam on the top, which meant that you'd been spitting in their water enough on the way back up <laughs> to make sure that they were drinking your spit. So they had all that sort of stuff and they never lost their courage and they, if they ever had anything, they would share it with each other, be it a cardigan was left to one of the nurses and she sold it for some food for one of the other nurses who was dying. And if they ever had a quinine tablet, they'd save it for someone who was more ill than them. They, really they always worked for each other. Yeah, amazing, amazing women. I think that's the wonderful thing about this story. If you gave a quick premise of it, it could sound like it might sound some like a very depressing part of our history, that it would be a really hard read. But mm. you, the most important, I think, for me reading this book, yes, I was very fascinated to learn about a part of our history that I had no idea about, shame on me. But the most magical part of the book was the relationships between the women and the nurses. Yes, they were really brave people. But it was even in the absolute depth of despair, they could yeah. laugh 
they looked yeah. out for each other. And I think it's just a wonderful story of female friendship. Right? And it's a triumph for that. You mentioned, so obviously all these little stories, you must have done so much research. So we have, I think, the three parts of writing a book, especially one like this book, uh, and that's the research of the pre-writing kind yeah. of stage and then the actual writing and then the editing, which you've also touched on a little bit about. Yeah. What do you think, sta- what stage took the longest in this Ugh. book? Was it the research, the writing or the editing? Oh, the rolling my eyes and hating my life took the longest. <laughs> uh, look, I reckon, oh, God, who knows? The writing took forever. I've got some research took forever as well. I, I, I think at the end you probably edited it pretty quickly, actually. Compared to the rest of it, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, and I probably maybe did. that's because then you had Ali's direction and also the confidence that it was it going was somewhere. Yeah, it was the thing by yeah. then. I think I got obliged to get it back quick, smart. But yeah, I'd say the writing and rewriting took the longest. Because the, the other thing being, Rach, I didn't know how I was going to tell it because. I have all nurses, they're all white, they're all vaguely middle class, they're all doing the same job, they're all in the same situation and it's really hard. So, like, if I was writing a a book with a male plumber who's 50 and a young girl who's a teacher and she's 20, it's her first job, and then a teenager, that's fine. You can tell the difference between them. They live in a different house and everything. But all my people lived together, worked together, wore the same clothes, blah, 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 blah. And so I didn't, I started off trying to tell it through four people like my four mm-hmm. mains, too confusing and just there was not enough action for everyone and why was I skipping between all these people? It was painful. Then I went back and just tried to tell it through one person and then I went, if I tell it through one person, what am I going to do when Minnie's off on, on Doing B? this or whatever, yeah. But then I had to do... I had to do two, so it's ended up being through Margot and Minnie, but even that was difficult because then when I went back through and I was redividing... The history then had to be realigned so that it happened in order because by the time I was pulling out story arc and character arc, it was then bouncing into the wrong bit of history. So then I had to re-separate out everyone's character arc and put them back in order to follow the history of what happened. So the whole thing, it was just a big disaster. You've managed to pull it off. So the whole, like, we're probably going to wrap up in a moment. I've got a few more questions, but let's just touch on character arc there for a moment because I think that's probably the difference between a factual recount of a non-fiction recount of what happened you don't necessarily have to have a story and character arc for each people you person you're just literally telling the facts about what happened maybe including some fun anecdotes and stuff but you don't need to but you mentioned that you know you needed a character arc once you'd chosen those two people how did you decide on what their character arc would be? And can you tell us a little bit about the writing of their character arc and what you learned about character arc in that? Yeah, it was such a big deal for me, the character arc, because that was going to, that is what makes it a fiction and what makes it a general fiction, like an entertaining commercial fiction. Because as you say, if I'm just going to write what happened in order, that's a history and that's nice and that's not mm. for most people. So I needed my fictional characters to actually have a thing. So I had Margot, who's at the start of the book. I better not go too much into character acting. Sorry, don't give us spoilers. No, I won't do spoilers. But Margot starts off as a very timid, rule-based person. And there are, and quite often they say about the Japanese during the novel, they say they don't follow, they don't play cricket, they don't follow the rules. And that was the truth of it. And they, everyone was shocked by that. But she's then thrown into this situation, no one follows the rule. So that's part of her arc. Then I have Minnie. Obviously Minnie's arc in particular it's happened. It's She's got an arc that's going to arc. And so her 
with her. Um, well, and you mean by that because it's not a spoiler because you've told us that she, she dies. She's going to die. Reggie we Beach. all know she's going to die. So you and, knew that that from the beginning. And that's the thing. None of my characters could, they weren't going to escape. No one did. They weren't going to fly away in a plane or they weren't going to fall in love with the Japanese gardens and settle in Japan. Like they're all set in stone. What has happened to those girls has happened to those girls. And so I had to work within that. So Minnie's arc is more to do with storytelling and going home and her brother Oliver and a beautiful matron Drummond. So she's got her own thing going on. Then I have Lola who is afraid that she'll never be loved. And she's got this real, she loves musicals, she loves singing, she loves the idea of romance and being loved. And she has her own arc within that. And then I've got... Even though she's not a point of view character, you're saying. Yeah, even though she's not a point of view, she has her arc. And then I've got Beth, who is my old mate, and she's the same. She starts off um, wanting a gun and she's there for revenge because she lost a friend before and she says, give me a bloody gun. And then she has her own arc. She has another reason for she decides she's there for another reason. So, yeah, they all within that all have their own arc, yeah. And so that, yeah, that I think it was very well done and obviously it took you a while to work that out, didn't it? Yeah, it didn't yeah I had overnight. to find that. Yeah, I had to find it or the book would have been a bit thin without it and mm-hmm. it, the idea of it is to make you care about those nurses. And it's for most people, oh, that's very interesting, but I needed to try and make people care. So this may kind of answer my next and second last question, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a two-parter. I want to give you, if you could give us some advice, and I want two specific bits of advice for, yes. for aspiring writers or writers looking to change genre. The verse is for aspiring authors. You wrote Drifter after many years of wanting to write a book. You said that it was needed to do something while you had young children or whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of people I hear, and I'm sure you've had asked people ask similar questions, is, I'd like to write a book, but I don't know where to start. So yep. what's your advice on where to start if you want to write a book? I was hoping you were going to say I can't find the time because then I would just say get up early. I don't know where to start. I reckon, and I think you've, I've heard you say this actually, so I'm possibly stealing it, but I reckon because it's the old right what, and I did that a little bit with Drifter Blah because mm. I knew about my hometown but what I think is more important is write what interests you write what you're curious about and I think the most interesting people that you hang out with are curious people who notice things and who comment on things and who wonder about things and and so I think to write about what you're interested in because that's it's blooming hard work and it's going to take a long time so you may as well be interested in it so I think if you can Find a topic that interests you, even if it's within romance or whatever genre, if you can find an angle into that is of interest to you, then I think that would pull you through. But also I think you've got to find a character you love and you've got to really (laughs) know and develop that character because I think there's nothing slower and more dragging and plodding than reading a book where I don't feel the central character. And if I'm not rooting for that character and feel like I know them and can relate to them, don't have to like them, but if I can't relate to them and they don't feel rounded. So I think probably an interesting topic to you and a really strong central character. I would work on those. Great advice. And I feel like maybe that character was what you got you through the writing of the war nurses in the end because it was the nurses that initially inspired you, but then you made them your own characters and they were, you could tell your story. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have been more invested in these characters. Yeah. Okay. The second part of the writing question is, any advice for people wanting to write fact-based historical fiction? Don't do it. 
Don't do it. Okay, fair enough. That's a good that's a good piece of advice. Is that it? It depends on how fact-based you are. There's some things that are inspired by. And I would go down that route any day of the week now. Inspired by all the way for me. I think, but if you love history and if you love if you love research and history, get into it. The only thing I would say is, and I've found this a lot with this book, is there's a lot of different versions of a lot of the stories. And a few, like even one of my little Uh, boys, one of my little characters I was talking to about today not with you i was probably telling possum she's asleep down here mm-hmm. um, misha the bear was a little jewish boy and he lost, loses both and he's a real boy and he loses both his parents early on in the in the their imprisonment his father drowns and his mother dies and in one of my one of my books i'm holding up i don't think you can see me but anyway in one of these books he's referred to as being russian and mm-hmm. so i started off calling him russian and then i picked up another book Oh, no. Which referred to him as being Polish. Um, oh, dear. Or being, from, or being from Poland. And I went, oh. And so then I swapped back to Poland. And then I went, oh, no, Misha. Oh. And so I've, I have him saying that his father's Russian because I thought, I don't know. <laughs> I can't sort you out, Misha, so I'm just going to say your dad's Russian. So in there where you see <gasps> that's him. So oh, things I love complex. it. So if you're trying to be too close to the, and I'm just going to say it's fiction, but if, if you're trying to be too close, I think it can suck some of the fun out of it because mm-hmm. if you can get... The creative aspect of fiction writing is why I'm here and I yep. want it to be entertaining and I want you to bloody know about these nurses and I want you to care, but if I'm going to get so bogged down in the minutiae, it's not going to be entertaining. So at some point you're going mm. to Awesome advice. Okay, final question okay. that I already know slightly the answer to, but so you've written mind. a rural romance. Yes, you've written actually a screenplay, but we haven't even gone on to that. That's a whole other thing. You've written rural romance, you've written a screenplay, and you have written historical fiction and historical, I should say. What is next for Anthea Hodgson? What are you going to work on? Thank next? you for asking. <laughs> when we say what's next, we're not talking. We're not talking next week. What um, I mean I- is because did you feel? Um, you can tell us about what you're actually thinking about. But did you ever? Oh, that's a book. To just give us an example. I mean, a peek, sneak peek. Was this has delved into historical fiction and now you're going to be a historical fiction writer from now on. How did you decide what to write next and then what are you writing next? Look, I'm writing, hopefully writing next. Here's even, look, talk, talking to the dead, why would I not be writing that? I'm staying historical for a while because I, probably because I am historical, I'm finding yeah. I'm very interested in historical. I'm not great at romance, let's face it, but I I would say that. Do you like banging? Not as good as you, lady. I need to get you to write my rude scenes for me. But it's okay because Anthea writes my description for me, so I think it's fair enough. Yeah, I think that's fair. So, look, I'm probably I'm going to stay historical for a while. And you and I did a road trip out to Kalgoorlie a year ago now, actually. I think it was March we went out. Oh, yeah. And it was fantastic. But And there's a lot of things, that, so many stories. It's a gold mining town. There's gold rush. There's prostitution out there, which was a system they only had in Kalgoorlie, as far as I know, called containment where the sex workers were contained to one street and that system ran through from about 1900 to 1990. And so I really wanted to write, because it's a women's story, I really want to write about sex workers in Kalgoorlie, probably dual timelines that are probably in the 90s when it's coming to an end and when it's beginning in Cal. Fascinating stories about so much international stuff so many miners were international so many of the sex workers are international international so that's all interesting also oh here's another one also there was a lot of seancing going on 
around that era and I'm very interested in putting that in because I want some fun having been with the nurses for so long. Yeah. So it's going to be gold, sex workers, seance. Does that Sounds sound like amazing? It, it does sound like a good read, but I've just realised what you were saying there. You've done rural, done historical, and now you're going to combine a rural because it's a rural town contemporary with historical. And there's going to be a lot of sex scenes I need you to help me with. Because Fine, because the- I've got a lot of description that I need you to help me with in my next book. So it's fair. I would hopefully I look forward to hearing next time we officially chat after you've finished writing this book about the pros and cons of writing dual timeline and how Look, you work that out because I think you're a sucker for punishment. I was going to say, I, I can hear yeah. now as you say that. I keep doing silly things and then my next Changing genres. <laughs> what an idiot. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Because <laughs> there's going to be a different process to learn and there's going to be yeah, different problems but different joys. I'm so anyway, so thank you so much for this delightful chat. I will happily chat to you any day, all day. We didn't even have wine and cheese today, so that is a miracle. Might be a first. (laughs) I was going to say, didn't even have a wine this time, which is a bit disappointing. But next time we see each other, we'll have to do. Thank you so much for chatting to me about my new book. I am super proud of it. But as you should be. So everyone who's listening, get into The War Nurses, which is out April 12th, is that right? That's correct. In Australia and New Zealand. And then you'll know all the little things that we're referring to. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.